Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Today is Friday, so I am joined by my co-host, friend, and colleague, Benham Ben Talibu, who's a senior fellow at FDD, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues, and so much more. Benham is an expert on these militias, the axis of resistance that Iran is supporting. Benham, thanks for uh, joining me today. Um, Look forward to our conversation. We're going to talk about Iraq's recent attacks and the Houthi uh, attacks and U.S. responses. Welcome back to Generation Jihad, Benham. Great to be back with you, Bill. Another Freaky Friday. Yes, it's uh, indeed another Freaky Friday. They're just, you know, they're not giving us a week off, are they, Benham? It's just always something to talk about, always something new and exciting and depressing for us to deal with. Absolutely. And uh, I think they know the federal holiday schedule here as well. Yeah. Listen, I always have an inside joke. Not only are these terrorists in the states that sponsor them, are they evil, but they're also inconsiderate. I really do wish they would check with our schedule to see, you know, like, hey, I'm on vacation. Could you not, like, launch that attack? Like, can the Houthis just dial it back this week? Can you not launch an airstrike or, or ballistic missiles in Erbil, Syria, and Pakistan this week? So I could just, I just need to dial it down, guys. So, look, I get you're evil, but stop messing with my schedule because I, I really need a break. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. No, and it's clear 2024 is going to give the start of 2020 a run for its money. I I have to agree with you 100% there, Ben. Um, well, look, let's launch into the, we'll, we'll, we'll cover the Houthis. Pun intended. Uh, oh, yes, exactly. A lot going on with the Houthis. Uh, since the, which we talked about in depth last Friday, the U.S. launched a series of of strikes against Houthi capabilities, air um, radars that are used to, to direct the missiles, missile launch platforms, launch sites. I believe there was somewhere around a hundred or so targets hit with aircraft and Tomahawk cruise missiles and other capabilities from both the U S and the UK. Since then, the U S has launched actually three. There was a, the next day there was a, what they, I would call a follow on strike. They hit a, hit another radar site used for launches. And then over the last several days, there were two separate strikes by the U.S. Uh, So both of those strikes over the last several days hit anti-ship ballistic missiles as they were on launch pads. Uh, So that's that's an interesting development. Clearly, the U.S. is increasing their uh, observation um, over the region. And the Houthis have launched three attacks themselves uh, on uh, cargo ships as they were moving in the Red Sea. And there were, I, I've read about one that wasn't actually an attack, but there was a ship about 100 miles southeast of Aden. This was reported in Reuters that was buzzed by a bunch of drones that the Houthis, I believe, claimed that they executed that. There was no actual attack. Uh, um, so the Houthis have not been deterred. They have uh, the deterrence has not been reestablished with that first round of uh, of strikes and then the two round two rounds of follow on strikes by the U.S. military. Um, and then here's what the Pentagon spokeswoman, her name is Sabrina Singh, said when asked about this. She said, "We are not at war with the Houthis. The Houthis are the ones that continue to launch cruise missiles, anti ship missiles at innocent mariners." 
what we are doing with our partners is self-defense, end quote. Um, this is Benham, this is what I had su- uh, suspected all along, that this was not going to be a concerted campaign to reduce Houthi capabilities, um, that we probably fall into some type of tit-for-tat situation. We launched that or- original round of strikes. We hope that's enough to deter the Houthis. The Houthis launch additional strikes. So we go after missiles on launch pads, but we're not actually going after Houthi leaders, Houthi military capabilities hitting the storage sites and and uh, any type of Houthi military capabilities that would be on my target list. And most importantly, the Iranian spy ship that's flying the Red Sea providing intelligence or Iranian um, advisors who are helping the Houthis maintain and fire these weapons. Um, or even Iranian naval assets in the region would be on my target list as well. So, Benham, uh, what are your thoughts about the uh, how this has developed over the past week since the U.S. launched uh, the in its initial round of strikes against the Houthis. You know, it, it's very interesting sitting in Washington and listening to the commentary out here because you have fringes of the left and the right framing essentially what you said, which is the uh, now essentially tit-for-tat nature of our responses to the Houthis and the Houthis' both capability and intent to continue to harass shipping to signal to us that they will not be deterred, so that they are, in fact, undeterred, despite any kind of decreasing capability that they may have because we are targeting storage depots, uh, weapons facilities, and things like that. So I think politically, you have certain groups in Washington, and perhaps even nationally, um, seeing this as a provocation by America. When in fact, America is putting out the statements, much like the one that you just read, Bill, that is so intent on signaling to an American domestic audience that this is not escalation, this is not escalation, this is entirely defensive, this is entirely limited, that that message translates over into how the Houthis see the will to carry out the rather impressive capability and the rather impressive punishment we have been able to met out against the Houthis over time. I don't think it's an exact copy-paste of the pinprick-style strikes we've seen from this administration in Iraq and Syria, but it has the potential to fall, for lack of better words, ass-backwards into it. And, and forgive the... For, forgive the No forgiveness needed, Ben. We're <laughs> Thank you. free. But it... it, it and in, in this sense, it's a little bit... It's a little bit different because there's been an evolution. You know, striking some of these uh, you know, missiles that are on rail launchers or on TELs, that is a sign of good ISR, or that is a sign of increasing ISR, which opens so many more questions than answers. You know, where is it coming from? How much is it going to cost? Uh, do we have enough? Where aren't they monitoring? What is the trade-off from where they used to monitor? Uh, there's all, all these unanswered questions here. Uh, and then stemming from that, of course, is, well, how long can this continue? Um, if the administration is intent on making this defensive, um, you may need to complement this with beefed up seizures. So you may need to beef up that force presence. You know, we haven't heard much uh, from that uh, Operation Prosperity Guardian uh, in the past few days. You know, CENTCOM was the one who revealed uh, these intercepted weapons going to the Houthis. Uh, in that package was, of course, explosives for uh, ballistic missiles, 
boosters and engines, I think, for uh, liquid fueled, uh, medium range ballistic missiles and explosives for anti ship cruise missiles. In fact, the casings for a very well known anti ship cruise missile that Iran has and has previously proliferated. So, Adam, uh, can I interrupt you here? You had uh, mentioned to me this offline the Iranians don't send over uh, an assembled missile to the Houthis, correct? They're sending over the components to be assembled in Yemen for the Houthis to then fire. Is that correct? That that still seems to be the case. Um, there, even when they were sending whole systems, it was cut up, like a la 2018, 2017, 2019, uh, when the U.S. was revealing this and the U.N. indeed did confirm this. Uh, but now what you're seeing, yes, is, again, component parts. Sometimes it is a whole system disassembled, like anti-tank weapons or land attack cruise missiles, and other times now it's, you know, parts of what they need. You know, the Iranian material support is luckiest and and most advantageous in in Yemen because they can already graft this missile relationship onto a very solid foundation. The Houthis took, you know, the arsenal of Saleh, which was already diverse and already distributed across the country, and then also the rocketry forces. So they have tech, they have know-how, they have raw material, and then you compound that with Iranian tech, Iranian know-how, raw material, different degrees of this to different levels for different weapon systems. You know, each one is like a cocktail. Um, and you get why, in my view, and, you know, some of our friends and colleagues may disagree, but I think the Houthis are the most powerful when it comes to long-range strike capabilities, meaning I put the Houthi ability to strike targets away from their territory, standoff weapons, better than Hezbollah, more than Hezbollah. Yeah, I would agree with that. The targets that the Hezbollah has to hit are not, you know, again, that, that they're closer, one, you know, that's one. So they they're don't need medium range ballistic missiles, but no one has the, these are, these yeah. are weapons of war. This is not like small arms trafficking or the IEDs. These are game changing developments. You know, and I go even go to that report that was in Reuters about the ship being buzzed. Uh, it was a hundred and something miles southeast of Aden, which is in southern Yemen, which is not under Houthi control. So they're directing drones from what, two, three hundred miles in order to interdict ship. We haven't seen another one of Iran's militias do this. Could they do it? Sure. But the Houthis have, dem- you know, again, it's not just this one example. It's all of the things that you mentioned. It's those anti-ship ballistic cruise missiles. There's I, one hit a target the other day. Did it sink the ship? No. Did it kill anyone? No. But it did damage uh, the cargo, according to reports. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm in, I agree with you. Uh, uh, sure, it's a great debate. Does Hezbollah have the ability to perhaps to cause more damage locally absolutely i think that is true given the amount of weapons and um what is actually pointed but the houthi's ability to project at a longer distance i'm 100 in agreement with you ben yeah and you know these are different strokes for different folks you know iran gives a different kind of weapon or helps build a different kind of indigenous capability to a different actor based on the different need the terrain the experience the nature of the target that they're firing at. Um, this is a very elastic relationship. This is what makes the axis of resistance so successful. It's neither A nor B. It's something in between. It's not totally foreign directed. It's not totally local and organic. Um, and, and this is, this, this is, you know, why the Houthis can just graft onto the post October 7 space and the people 
who are here saying that the only way to turn off the Houthi firepower is not through us contesting them or severing ties with Iran or you know militarily pushing back on Iran or, or the Houthis. The only way to do it is to give in to the Houthi demand. Um, and the Houthi demand is, you know, Israel has to stop everything that it's doing in Gaza. So uh, the Houthis, the, the, if I had to really package this, you know, be fancy and academic for a second, um, Iran's strategy in the region is armed suasion. It's not designed to fight you. It's actually designed to make you be rational and logical and say, Iran is not worth fighting. The Houthis and the, and the God knows what and the who knows where are not worth fighting. It's designed to elicit that response to say, it's easier to meet the political demand of our adversary than contest our adversary's will to achieve that political demand militarily. And what that means is it's easier to give Iran what it wants. It's easier to give the Houthis what it wants. It's easier to turn a blind eye to Assad and uh, Hezbollah and all the militias in Iraq now repackaged as the Islamic resistance. Easier to do that uh, than to have to solve the problem because in attempts to even manage the problem, given what they have and given that this is their terrain, given that they have high interests and high resolve, means that it's going to cost us more. And it's going to go on longer. And because we cannot guarantee that we'll be committed to achieve those ends and to run the risk and take the fight to them, it's best to give in. And that's why you do see this chorus of voices. It's the same chorus of voices on the fringe left and fringe right that are saying Biden is escalating against the Houthis, that are saying, yeah, you can actually turn off the Houthi war altogether without using any military means. And that is by giving in to the... Uh, major Houthi political demand, which is, you know, the shutdown of the Israel-Gaza war. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's an element of exhaustion to this, right, Benham? Right. They want, they're, they're going to outlast us. They're going to tire us. I always go back to the, this was the Taliban strategy. The Taliban knew they couldn't defeat us militarily in Afghanistan, but it's all of the things you mentioned. They had the staying power. They were there. They had the terrain. They had the backing. The Taliban was real, merely the proxy of Pakistan. Of course, it has its own element of, you know, um, its own organic element, the Taliban or an organic Afghan, but its support from Pakistan was significant. And another thing with these, I think, you know, when you're talking about these militias, I always think it's, it's best when these militias aren't fully controlled by the Iranians or in the case of with Pakistan, another state sponsor of terrorism, when they, when they influence these groups and support them, but not fully direct them, because that gives these groups all the more reason to keep their skin in the game, to let them feel that they're in control, to fight for what they believe. And no one wants to fight for a master who really doesn't care for them. The Iranian, the, the Houthi-Iranian relationship, I think, works best because the Houthis were formed organically within, within Yemen and share very similar goals. You always go back to the Houthi, um, their motto, right? Death to Israel, death to the United States, uh, all glory to Islam, right? You know, Geez, that sounds that's you know may as well have been written by the Iranians. It wasn't. Yeah, in, in fact, in fact, the the commentary around it may have been designed to solicit support and cement support uh, from the Iranians. You know, Excellent. I remember reading human rent. You know, uh, I'm not a scholar of the human terrain of Yemen. Like I can kind of give you the back of the hand with Iran, but there were reports circulating, and I I hadn't seen this because again. This was not a you know number one hot button issue for Washington, but there is a small Baha'i community in Yemen, very 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 small Baha'is. It was originally a, 
uh, formed from the Bobby movement. It was a social revolt, political revolt that became a religious revolt against 19th century uh, Persian Shiite rule uh, in Iran. Uh, they were the forerunners to the Baha'i faith, which is now not a sect of Islam. In fact, Shiites see them as entirely, it's like a, you know, Catholics, Protestants, or religious Orthodox Jews versus, you know, how they might view Jesus Christ. Uh, it, they see them entirely as an offshoot that is a rebellion against the mainframe of the religion. Moral of the story is that the Baha'is are deeply persecuted in Iran. You know, Iran allegedly, you know, allegedly, they have like represented minorities in the parliament. They really more like Potemkin villages of these poor represented and downtrodden minorities. But they do not permit the Baha'is to have a have a seat because they see it as a heresy. Whereas as discriminated as Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians are in Iran, they're allegedly, you know, they're given the seat uh, in the parliament. Again, it's it's more symbolic. Uh, they're supposed to toward the party line. But the reason I'm saying this is because you started to see here reports from human rights organizations and people traveling and people involved in the dispersal of humanitarian aid that not only are the Houthis absconding with humanitarian aid, not only are they sieging cities, not only are they using child soldiers, uh, you know, all these things that would make them a terrorist, uh, but literally finding uh, and persecuting Baha'is. Uh, in, in in Yemen, I was like, this clearly was not the priority for the Houthi insurgency when they overran the country. But to cement their support, you know, it would make sense that your enemy is my enemy. So if the regime, the Islamic Republic, the Khomeinist interpretation of twelve or Shiite Islam is cracking down on the Baha'is, then the proxies of that are also going to be cracking down. And this this was one way, I think, in word and in ideology and indeed how the Houthi-Iran relationship really cemented. It's a very, very small footnote to it, again, because of the size of the community. Um, but you saw reports of this, and I was like, wait, Yemen has Baha'is? And you, know, you went and you checked, and, and you're like, wow, this is exactly how these small-scale daily actions, how you build and sustain uh, coherent support. The Iranians are very good at this, um, at doing it slowly, taking it step by step, sort of co-opting. I get I'll, I'll t- in in the Sunni side of it, Al Qaeda is very good at this as well. Not always, but it's interesting when they fail. They they there's lessons learned, right? I remember, um, you know, Al Qaeda in their case, they what they'll do, they co-op tribes. They don't try to get them 100 on board with their ideology, with how they view the world. They'll start with that fifty percent that does work, right? With the the lo- local grievances, um, you know, local support for Islam, but like, and then they slowly build um, those relationships over time. I re- recall a um, sort of an after action report between the head of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the head of Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and the AQAP leader, his name was Nasser Al Wahashi. He was giving an after action report in Yemen about how they overreached. You know, he said we try. You know, we tried to spread our version, our our version of Sharia law or Islamic law, too quickly, and it was it was too much, and we lost some support, and we took too heavy. Ca- My whole point in explaining this is, it's a lot of what you're talking about. The Iranians are very good, and they don't have to get 100 percent on the front end of support from the local actors, from the Houthis or the militias. Start working with those things that are um, that they have a natural. Uh, relationship with with and then build it over time. Yeah, they're not going to, the Iranians are smart. They're not going to walk into the Houthis day one and say, I want you to suppress the Baha'i. Let the Houthis come to that conclusion. And it's, it's, that's it. This is how, you know, you're dealing with an actor that isn't playing checkers, but playing chess. And um, those are the ones that worry me. That's why, you know, I always view Al-Qaeda as a more 
dangerous enemy than the Islamic State. The Islamic State just doesn't play well with others. Whereas Al Qaeda says, "Look, we'll have a big tent and we'll work with you." Um, those groups. And this was and Iran back in the day. I mean, now we, we are seeing a slight change. I'm not the first to point this out. I know a lot of people have you know done great work on this, especially based on how they've seen the Syrian war really change Iran's axis of resistance. And you know, let's not forget that phrase, the phraseology of the axis of resistance. Let's tip our hand here. We're working on a larger project with Long War Journal on you know unpacking this entire network. But that phraseology really comes in as Iran sees the traditional Arab order around it collapse in the region with the, uh, the what is it, the Arab Spring. And Iran called the Arab Spring the Islamic Awakening, and they first tried to diplomatically co-opt these things. And once they saw these jurisdictions of strong central authority fracture, and Iran tried to create inroads, first it, you know, Iran tried to create inroads, it ended up moving from, in some places you can co-opt who, who moves into the state, and in other places you can't. And in those places that you can't, where there is fragmentation, there is room for your influence. And a lot of that was happening in Yemen. Low level, nothing big at all like the Houthi movement, but, you know, Iranian weapons in Yemen, I think there was a shoulder launch weapon was the first one from 2012 or 2013 uh, in one of the ceasefires that actually the Russians had helped get back in, again, 2012, 2013 at the UN uh, for another kind of boom and bust cycle of violence between Saudi Arabia and, and Yemen. Um that that was one you know telltale sign you know the you know the Iranians are coming they're they're looking at the breakup of the state structure uh, and they're coming and in the heartland of the Middle East particularly after the collapse of the Arab Spring they became more kind of driven in their sectarianism that it's not just we're going to push our ideology we're going to push this particular interpretation of our ideology. And we're going to complement it with steel, where in the past we didn't have the capability to complement it with steel because of the U.S. force presence, because of the coherence of the states around us, because of the lack of people in these jurisdictions who would want to hear our message. I mean, it goes up, it goes down. Iran was really popular in the 2006 Lebanon war. Iran became very unpopular as at the same time it was seen as publicly uh, helping Assad slaughter innocent Syrians. So it, it it knows how to ride this wave, but what I'm seeing now, and again, this is like probably perhaps not an original or organic assessment, is the regime is more comfortable embracing this sectarian identity and more comfortable with overt displays of military force, which gets us into our next topic. But in a world where it doesn't, or if you look at the world where it may not, uh, it was very comfortable talk about playing in the sandbox nicely with others, being ecumenical. Because that ecumenical approach, the as long as you hate the people we hate, we're good, is what allowed it to get around the we're not just Persian, which is an ethnic minority in the region. Uh, we're not just Shiite, which is a sectarian minority uh, in the region and in, across the Islamic world. We harbored the same grievances you do, which is why the incubation period of Bosnia, Afghanistan, and most importantly, Sudan, uh, in the 90s what was so important for Iran and for really the formation of these bridges between Sunni and Shia terror groups. Yeah, it's well said, Benham. That's that's just an excellent description of how Iran has spread its influence and how it's changed. I mean, when I go back and look at the Houthis. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned 2012 is the first point where we actually are detecting the steel 
of the Iranians arriving in Iran. Now that that means probably several years prior, but the but that real bulk of the Iran Houthi relationship is probably de- developed over what the last fifteen years. We we probably estimate where it's really metastasized into this dangerous, and that's what you know. Iran, you know, I, I look back and you want to people say, well, Iraq was a, the Iraq war was a disaster for this reason or that reason. For me, first and foremost, it's because it allowed the spread of Iranian influence. It removed, I mean, the Saudis are not the stopgap to Iranian influence as they were two decades ago because of the collapse of the Iraqi regime. The, um, you know, Syria is a free fire zone. Um, the, the Assad regime is, is essentially an Iranian client at this point. The the Egyptians really want seem to have no desire to get involved or flex its muscles throughout the Middle East. Who's there to stand up to the Iranians at this point? I realize that's a whole different issue, but the, the Iran's abilities to develop, yes, the, it supported militias in the 1980s and 1990s with Bader and and um, the you know the Mahdi army, obviously early on. But then these other militias developed in both Iraq and Syria, breakoffs from from the Mahdi army, which just metastasized into these massive groups. So it's no longer just Hezbollah. And, um, it, it's it's become a regional, these militias, this axis of a resistance, which many people mock, have become has become a, a real force in the region. And it's worrisome. This is, uh, I realize I'm probably getting a little off topic here, but as you, as you explain Iran's greater strategy and how it implements it, it, it just brings this, all of this to mind. No, it's 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 my pleasure. Um, and you've you and Longword Journal have intimately covered this, but these guys do move from rags to riches, not just the patron, but the proxies. And it's important to keep a camcorder view on this. Um, and I'm saying this because we're about to get into the second topic, but I know I'm delinquent on writing about it, but I apologize. There's been a ton of stuff going on. No, listen, this is the real struggle we have. Um, yeah, it's, right? it's picking what not to do, not what to do. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember with Afghanistan, one of my regrets, just, so, you know, look, uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's a, people should understand the challenges we're in. Like I regret not doing more generation jihad podcasts with Tom Jocelyn. We should have been doing one every other day. Like we're doing right now. But we were so busy talking to the press and trying to write that article for the Long War Journal because that thing happened and then talking to government officials. And, and then at some point I was helping people get out of Afghanistan. I was like working 22 hour days. I'm like, where am I going to put this? It's, you know, when it's like this, it's real. So you don't have to apologize for not doing something. We're doing stuff. It's just it's just, we're just pointed in so many directions we have to select. But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, no, that, that was it. It's better to have a camcorder view. Uh, to how these things evolve. Because if you just check in sporadically, you're like, okay, these guys only have this capability and you'll be content with saying the good guys or the allies have Y capability and Y offsets X, so we're good, everyone check out. And that seems to be, with respect, how sometimes US government has looked at this, how sometimes friends in Washington have looked at this. And they might say to us at different points along this line um, that you are making too much out of X. You are making too much. But it's about the trajectory. It's about what they had, when they've used it, how long this will be in the fight, and where they're headed. You know, 
Hezbollah is using IRAMs now, but we had the Shia militias using IRAMs to, you know, make it look like they were kicking us out in 2011 when we left. Look, uh, I documented ISIS IRAMs in 2007, you know? Ben. I have pictures of that on Long War Journal. You know, you using these propane tank IRAMs that were like really rudimentary, but you know, at the end, that was 2006, seven, eight. I was reporting on that. That's that's how far back this goes, and and how how it, it develops over time. Exactly. You got You got. Got to keep a camcorder view. That's the only way. Yeah. The um. Look, let's let's move on to the Iranian attacks. There's so much we could unpack there, and I, I have other thoughts. But uh, you know, we have tons of time this year to do it, and these these issues will come up again. But let's let's talk about the Iranian attacks. Um. I look at these in different categories here. The the Iranians they launched first. Uh, um, this was late last was early this week, late last week. Uh, time is completely compressed for me at this point. Um, but first they hit a um, apparently the home of a businessman in Erbil. That is that correct? They Venom. Yeah. And they claim that he was a Mossad agent, and they claim to have hit Mossad, of course, being Israeli intelligence. Um hit three Mossad bases in Erbil. Erbil is, of course, the uh, a large Kurdish city in northern Iraq, basically the capital of, for the Iraqi Kurds. And then they also launched strikes against the Islamic State in both, well, we know they launched strikes against the Islamic State in Syria. In Pakistan, that's a little bit more murky. They They said they were targeting the Islamic State, but I suspect they were targeting Baluch terrorists there. Um, they apparently Jaysh al Adel, which is an Al Qaeda linked uh, jihadist group that is also Baluch terrorist in, inside of Pakistan. So I kind of look at these as you know two two distinct areas. The strike on the Kurds is one, and then the other strikes in Syria and Pakistan they're different because they were going after terrorist groups. But what exactly were really were they going after inside of um, uh, inside of Iraq? And again, they said they were going after Mossad bases. By the way, the, they, the Iranians have claimed this for years, and the Iraqi government actually convened an investigation several years ago and, and came up. And the Iraqi government, which is dominated by, um, you know, a, Iraqi or Iranian supporting politicians, came up and said, "Look, there just isn't this. They're just not here." Um, so this is a claim that the Iranians have made over time. What are the Iranian motivations for these attacks? Let's start with the Abir one, then go to Syria, and then go to Pakistan. Sure. Uh, let me just, if it's right, put a couple of footnotes to that because we Absolutely. have more things coming in from the Persian press. So there's two different sets of attacks across three jurisdictions. And what links them all together is that they are public attacks launched from Iranian territory employing ballistic missiles and this is part of a trend we've seen since 2017 uh 2017 was the first time iran launched ballistic missiles from its territory after almost a two decade long pause since the end of the iran iraq war uh we've covered this on long war journal before particularly about the 2018 strikes but um in the 1990s, uh, the Iran-Iraq war ended in 1988. In the 1990s, a handful of times up until 2001, Iran fired scuds at MEK, an Iranian opposition group formerly housed in Baghdad, uh, bases in Iraq. Saddam Hussein had given this armed opposition group 
uh, you know, refuge. Uh, and this group had fought uh, with the Ba'athists against Iran at the tail end of the Iran-Iraq War. Those were post-Iran-Iraq War, so peacetime public military operations launched from Iranian territory at another uh, sovereign territory targeting a non-state actor. Uh, from that time, from 2001 up until 2017, you had a lull in these attacks. With the ISIS attacks in Tehran starting in, in, in 2017, uh, and then the revolution we saw in Iranian precision strike uh, short-range ballistic missiles, um, the regime felt more confident that it could and should be seen as responding. Now, this matters very much because the regime... Um, you know, has perfected this proxy strategy that we just spent a bunch of time talking about working by, with, and through cutouts. The big goal there is deniability, uh, you know, to say that it's a local actor, it's not a foreign patron. Another big goal there is to be able to say, well, uh, we don't want an attack to come back onto Iranian territory. That's the big lesson of the Iran-Iraq war. Keep the war off of your territory. So forward deployment. So don't give them a direct return address for strikes. Uh, and then don't be seen as actually responding. But this confidence in the capability, plus the changing threat environment, um, plus, of course, the impression that Iran would not incur kinetic uh, retaliation or could sustain whatever kinetic retaliation came its way, is what has been driving these post-Iran-Iraq war military operations. You've had one in 2017 uh, against uh, ISIS uh, in Syria, Two in 2018, one against uh, allegedly uh, ISIS in Iraq and the other, the KDPI uh, in Iraq, the Kurdistan Democratic Party opposition group. Uh, 2020, you had the response against the U.S. bases, which was historic. That's the biggest ballistic missile barrage America ever received since the end of World War II. And that was uh, post the strike. Post uh, Soleimani strike, exactly. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, you've had uh, 2022, March, uh, the Iranians, again, claiming the Israelis had a, you know, a Mossad base in Iraq. They were responding to the drone targeting of an Iranian military factory in February 2022. So the Iranians used ballistic missiles in, again, uh, March 2022. Then three times uh, in the fall of 2022, there were separate operations against northern Iraq um, uh, alleging some kind of Kurdish insurgent support, uh, and then while, of course, the protests were going on inside Iran. So this is the background, that Iran is using more public ballistic missile operations than ever before. So they want to be seen as responding. This is the exact opposite of the proxy strategy. I was talking to a lot of press about this. They see it as one or the other. That's a mistake, just like they see the conventional versus asymmetric weapons as a mistake. Iran is able to take one thing and graft it onto the other. So talk about walking and chewing gum at the same time. You can have a proxy strategy at play and then also have an overt uh, military strategy at play as well and push these two things out. For one, you don't want attribution. For the other, you want all the attribution. Um, and this this is based on the threat environment, the person that they're attacking or the entity that they're attacking and the jurisdiction they're doing attacks in. So up until the Pakistan attack, Every single place Iran had launched ballistic missiles at, and there have been 15, including the Pakistan attack from the end of the Iran-Iraq war to present, 15 public ballistic missile operations from Iranian territory. This is something we chronicled in my missile monograph called Arsenal, if anyone is interested in doing some more investigation on that. 
But until the Pakistan one, every single one was at Iraq and Syria, and every single one was at an undefended target. That's very interesting. So even when Iran directly fires at U.S. bases, when Iran is firing at ISIS, when Iran is firing near the U.S. positions, when Iran is firing at Kurds, when Iran is firing at opposition groups, it is firing at undefended bases or undefended targets, meaning there is no advanced Western uh, air and missile defense architecture at play. So if Iran is doing this publicly and from its own territory, it wants all the benefits of the strike being successful, which is why it uses these precision strike weapons, and more importantly, why the regime uh, wants to make sure what it's hitting is undefended so it can claim victory. And then also in the Iranian narrative for all of this is that they are never provoking, they are never uh, going on offense, they are going on defense, they are punishing, so they are responding to something that already happened. The 2017 attack by ISIS gave Iran the predicate to go and first launch these missile operations. So what is the predicate then if all of this is supposed to be very different? Iran claims that the strike in Syria was against ISIS positions, and that was in response to the ISIS-K terror attack uh, in uh, in Kerman, the hometown of Qasem Soleimani, at the fourth anniversary of his funeral. Now, this raises some questions. Why would Iran fire missiles towards its west when ISIS-K is in its east? And people, you know, even Iranian media reporting has talked about the potential role of Afghanistan or Central Asian countries. Uh, in giving laissez-passe to some of these ISIS-K terrorists. So that uh, that is something to unpack there. But the missile Iran chose to use from uh, southwestern Iran towards uh, Syria to strike allegedly ISIS-K positions uh, is a variant of a short-range ballistic missile that Iran has upgraded to a medium-range ballistic missile, uh, solid propellant, uh, with finlets, allegedly has warhead maneuverability, is called the Khaybar Shikhan, uh, which translates to the breaker of Khaybar. It has about a 1,450 kilometer range, uh, which means point to point, Iran can strike Israel with this weapon. And it's a precision strike solid fuel missile, uh, unlike the liquid fuel, you know, larger systems that Iran had in the 90s and early 2000s, which also could strike Israel. Um, so it's a little bit of a game changer. And this is the first battlefield use of this weapon. And even the name, Khaybar Shikan, is something of a note to the Israelis because Khaybar is the name of a, uh, a Jewish stronghold, really like a, a few castles uh, in Arabia uh, at the time of the, the Prophet Muhammad that were essentially overrun by the Prophet Muhammad's armies. Uh, and, and, and Khaybar, even just mentioning that name, is meant to invoke... Um, that kind of you know borderline incitement uh against uh, jews and against the jewish state so the the name of the missile khaybar shikan the breaker of khaybar the destroyer of khaybar is designed to tell you you know what operations the regime may have in mind for this missile and this was the first one and it struck uh at syria uh, we believe there were at least four of these missiles fired the second one the strikes in iraq those were not designed to be uh, against or not framed as being against, uh, you know, Kurdish opposition positions. Those were framed just like the March 2022 one you mentioned. Those were framed as being against Mossad facilities in and around Erbil. There was very unhelpful uh, regional reporting by Arab press and also some Western reporters thinking that this was a strike on the U.S. consulate in Erbil. We want to clarify both the U.S. and the Iranians have said this is not a strike on the consulate on Erbil. Ben, I mean, on that to... point, I, you know, 
people were like, why aren't you reporting on this? Well, you know, they hit the U.S. and I'm sitting there going, hey, look, I need real confirmation that this hit the U.S. consulate, right? The easiest thing to do, and I actually saw it in some Western press as well that was like since changed. You got to be really careful in these situations, right? It's easy to, you know, the, the Iranians fire at an Islamic State camp or something like that. That's you know I I, I I'll be, that's that's a lot more believable than they directly attack the U.S. consulate. In, like I need real hard confirmation. I'm not sitting here saying that I you know I'll believe anything the Iranians say you know if they're going after jihadists but not the U.S. But what I'm saying is is that that's very it's a very sensitive subject. You got to be very careful in your reporting in that, and that's why I didn't even mention it really until we. Um, until the next day, because I just trying to sort all that, that, that information that's very unhelpful when um, the press does this sort of thing. And yeah, absolutely. Have to be careful. Yeah, we got, we got to be careful. You know, step number one, no own goals, whatever yeah. your views, however one analyzes, however one looks at these issues, no own goals. Absolutely. Let's go on, Ben. I didn't mean to interrupt yeah, no, you no, there. No, just... no worries. I didn't mean to drag on so long. I just wanted to put all the data out there. So, you know, we have the Syria one down. Okay. The Iraq one, they're alleging it's Mossad. Uh, people thought it was uh, striking at Erbil. What happened in actuality, as you mentioned, is uh, they ended up, uh, you know, killing a, a, a very prominent Kurdish businessman and his family, uh, actually, uh, in their home, which was a larger residential compound. Iran is alleging, and in fact, pro-regime media on social media and on their TV stations have been alleging that um, even when you look at the wreckage, they're claiming that the wreckage says that this was a fortress or that this was a you know, this was definitely like a reinforced government or military building. This couldn't have been a residential compound. Uh, whether that's, you know, whether there's a kernel of truth to that or whether that is just the regime trying to account for the fact that its missile didn't destroy every single thing in that vicinity uh, remains to be seen. Uh, I, for one, would not be totally shocked uh, if, you know, there was zero, this is not, again, to justify, but I would not be totally shocked if there was zero Israeli intelligence activity in Iraq. Um, but again, that is to say, that is not at all giving a green light to what the Iranians did, nor, of course, to who they killed. Because if you look at it in the March 2022 attack, that also struck the home of a prominent Kurdish uh, businessman. Now, some are trying to unpack the fact that Iran is actually shooting at these prominent Kurdish businessmen, that this is a sign against the Kurdish opposition groups, or that this is a sign against any kind of potential backdoor Kurdish-Israeli ties, uh, or potentially about Kurdish oil to Israel. There's all these speculations running amok, um, and we can't confirm or deny any of them, but this is just what people are saying. So quite literally, people are saying, and that that's the realm of you know credibility behind it, but it is something to have to think about and to have to engage with, because if you remember, there were some unclaimed strikes, I think in 2018 or 2019, uh and shia militia weapons depots um that you know if you ask me probably was israel and probably was one of the further ranging uh, I, uh iaf uh or idf operations um uh, likely going after some of these uh, uh ballistic missiles that iran had moved into iraq but th yeah that's neither here nor there so you know location number two erbil in and around a few uh buildings uh killing uh in innocent largely innocent individuals we believe uh, and this is the narrative the regime has put out in the aftermath. Iran says this is a Mossad cell. They've said this in the past. CC the 2022 attack. These two happened joint jointly. And just let me stress this: uh, we believe that the the missiles used were Fateh 110s, single stage solid fuel short range ballistic missiles. 
and ultimately um these were missiles used in previous rounds of military operations before but what makes this strike so different is that this is the first ever joint attack so the first time uh iran different irgc bases in iran you know concurrently launch ballistic missiles but at different jurisdictions you had two bases in the northwest fire at iraq and one base in the southwest fire at syria uh so sticking well within the ranges of the arsenal uh that they have so this is this is what makes this strike very interesting and this wraps up the strikes to the west and then you you mentioned something then we'll go to the east yeah i you know for whatever the motivations for the attack in erbil right and with the syria i think there's multiple things going on here um and and i think part of this is the iranians are messing you know there's there's pressure on the u.s by the iraqi government to leave whether that's you know just face saving from the iraqi government they really don't want the u.s to leave or not part of what we've seen is that you know there's been reporting in the press that the kurds are are saying well look we would love to host the americans even if the iraqi government wants them to leave so i always think when these things happen it isn't just one reason you know they weren't just going after this kurdish businessman or Mossad agents it's a message to the kurds that you know if you want to get too friendly with the americans we are right here and we have capabilities that you need to be aware of and the other thing is what you had mentioned right coordinated strikes that's a message to the israelis that we could launch long-range attacks um there's other reasons for it it's it's you know there's a series of 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 reasons for the or a, a continuum of reasons for these attacks and these are in my opinion or what i believe to be part of that it isn't just hitting those targets it's they're sending messages let's go on to pakistan ben and let's unpack that next i think that's this is this is the real interesting one and i think this is very misunderstood by most analysts but i'm, I'm really interested in hearing your your take on it to the east uh for the first time ever iran has publicly launched ballistic missiles at pakistan uh, technically not at the government of Pakistan or Pakistani military uh, headquarters or sites, but Iran claimed to be targeting a Sunni jihadist group called Jaysh al-Adil, uh, which even the U.S. Uh, State Department has as a designated foreign terrorist organization. Uh, that entity, Jaysh al-Adil, you know, uh, was responsible for a low-level insurgency in southeastern Iran, really, I think, throughout uh, 2014, if I'm not mistaken, particularly with some bombings around a town called Saravan. And uh, more importantly, and more recently, there were allegations about uh, Jaysh al-Adil um, attacks inside Iran in the same area, the southeastern area of Sistan and Baluchistan, uh, in the town of Rask. And uh, that town is important because when you hear uh, and you look at the you know IRGC officials and military officials in the Persian press, uh, earlier this January, talking about the strikes that were undertaken, um, you know, and, and this is the time when they had just fired at Syria and uh, Iraq. They talked about it as retribution for Kerman and Rask. Uh, Kerman, we all know, again, that was the killing of the, uh, that was the bombings uh, at the funeral uh, on the fourth anniversary of the killing of Soleimani. But Rask was this attack on a, on, on a big police station. Um, where in fact the group had said that it was a, a much larger casualty figure that the Iranian government was letting on. Um, so, you know, Iranian sources did tip their hand that there would be something coming related to Jaysh al-Adil. Um, 
but no one really knew where and no one really knew when. And no one, to be honest, thought that Iran would be so bold as to launch a public attack uh, onto its onto the territory of its nuclear armed neighbor. And in the area that it did uh, send the attack, that it, that it did the fire ballistic missiles and allegedly uh, used drones, to this date, we don't know exactly which drone and exactly what kind of ballistic missiles, but likely close range or short range, single stage solid fuel ballistic missiles. Uh, and if one way attack drones, likely the Shahid 131 or 136. Uh, and if not, um, it could have been like 2018 uh, when Iran actually did a combined arms operation uh, with, I think, Mohadra class drones that could drop bombs. Either way, um, this strike on, on Pakistan was historic. And for a country like Iran and a country like Pakistan, both of which are pretty sensitive about their sovereignty, uh, it did raise, especially in the Western press, the prospects of escalation. And you did see Pakistan militarily respond. I think it's still debated if it was an airstrike or a drone strike. I, I um, heard both, Benham. I heard it was both an airstrike and a drone. Um, yeah, and, and I think the Pakistani government has also put out some mixed messaging on it. But um, killing at least nine or ten people, uh, including women and children. But here's the kicker for both of these the territory, both on the Pakistani side of the border and on the Iranian side of the border, there is a largely uh, majority ethnic group that lives in that area called the Baluch. And the Baluch don't have good representation in Pakistan, and they certainly don't have good representation uh, in Iran. Uh, if you may have heard of a prominent uh, Baluchi leader, uh, if you're an Iran watcher, uh, Mulavi Abdul Hamid, uh, sometimes you know him by his actual formal name, Abdul Hamid Esmail Zai. Uh, this is the guy who has been giving those major important Friday prayer sermons in the town of Zahedan, uh, really galvanizing the population and leading anti-regime protests, even though as early as 2021, uh, this same individual, Mulavi Abdel Hamid, had actually called on people to participate in the 2021 presidential elections, and he was instrumental in getting support from the province for current hardline Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi. So just in a matter of a year, how far things have changed in that province. Some see Iran's strike on Pakistan as really a signal to that Baluch population to not think that they can control things, to not think that even if they do resort to violence, that uh, they could have a safe haven across the border. And many saw this as the logic behind Iran's fall 2022 strikes with close-range ballistic missiles, one of which actually did end up killing for the first time ever a U.S. citizen. Uh, in northern Iraq. Some of them saw it as the rationale for Iran clamping down abroad on a population that was the same ethnic group that it was clamping down on home, which were Kurds here and Kurds there. So this also uh, is an important uh, thing to note. Now, there are some in the Western press, and I think, Bill, you might agree with me, that are inclined to take this Iranian strike as on Pakistan and reciprocal Pakistani strike on Iran as the potential for a nuclear war or the potential uh, for a major escalation. I understand that, but there are just as many dampeners of the conflict as there are drivers. You know, number one, both countries are partners with China. Number two, there's allegations that Saudi Arabia had alleged to, 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 to moderate. Number three, uh, despite Iran claiming to have struck Jaysh al-Adil and, and the P Pakistanis claiming to have struck Baluch liberation groups, uh, Baluch separatist groups, you could say, uh, on the Iranian side of the border, 
largely Baluch civilians are believed to have died. And neither state has really given a damn about the health, welfare, and well-being of Baluch civilians on either side of the border. So in this sense, to think that a population that uh, each each you know jurisdiction has relegated to the back burner would be the casus belli for a conflict to risk much more than that, um, I, I find that to be a little bit dubious. And it's precisely why when Pakistan responded, in my view, it somewhat wisely gave Iran a face-saving line of retreat. Now you had Iranian press follow that face-saving line of retreat. The Pakistanis were talking about a friendly and brotherly-like relationship, uh, almost washing away with rhetoric. And folks, this is the importance of rhetoric when you use military force. If you look at the U.S. using military force, but dampen, but using such rhetoric that washes away uh, the impact of that strike or the opposite, you know, the Trump administration grandstanding after certain strikes, you have to think carefully about what you want the adversary to take away from the use of force. Sometimes despite force being used, the adversary will respond to the commentary around the force. And commentary matters, you know, just look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. When you provide someone with multiple options, you give them multiple outs. You let them control the tenor and the scope, and you let them decide what is worth escalating, what is worth responding to. So the ascription of agency can be done not just with military force, but with uh, rhetoric. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. And you saw the Iranians go for it. You saw a hardline Iranian press talk about the people who had died were not even Iranian citizens. Again, a major denigration, again, of the, the innocent Baluch who Pakistan did kill on this side of the border, but nonetheless did allow Iran to climb down the escalation ladder. And thus far, at the time of this recording, Friday afternoon, January 19th, all now seems to be, you know, calm and restored. That doesn't mean that the actual insurgent actions of Jay Shaladil, that Sunni jihadist group, uh, is unlikely to, is not going to continue. In fact, it is hyper likely to continue. Sistan Baluchistan province is one of Iran's poorest provinces. It's long been a hotbed of drug smuggling and weapon smuggling. Uh, and of course, there's been a major uh, issue there with Afghanistan as well, uh, which also does touch that same border region. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled on this region, but not for a likely Iran-Pakistan war, but for a stepping up of that insurgency, which actually Long Word Journal did cover uh, back in 2014, brought to you by Jay Shaladil. And just for some perspective, folks, the, the Jay Shaladil, formerly known as Jandala, look, this group has launched attacks, numerous attacks inside of Iran. So from Iran's perspective and they're they're a great threat. Now the irony is is that the Islamic State, which is not Jay Shalhidal, claimed credit for that attack on Soleimani's funeral. Um, but look, for instance, Jay Shalhidal killed 24 members of Iranian security forces in Sistan, Baluchistan, in a suicide attack in 2019. I think that was. Um, so this is a what we're look and and then on the Kurds. I'm sorry, the 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 Baluch. Think of think of them as like the Kurds, right? And the, the Iranians don't like the Kurds because of it. They want the Kurds want a separatist region um, or a region to carve out as their home state. The the Baluch do the same thing. So the Pakistanis don't like the 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 Baluch. The the Iranians don't like the Baluch. In Afghanistan, it's a little bit different because they actually have some sort of autonomy or unspoken autonomy inside of Afghanistan. And they typically don't threaten the Afghan state, even under Taliban rule. What happens is they just sort of do their business in Pakistan and Iran, which is kind of ironic. But um, yeah, I don't expect, I'm with you. I don't expect this to go beyond what it is. 
the Iranians after that attack on uh, Soleimani's um, that his grave site, they needed to save face. Look, both internally, they needed to show their people that they were responding because internal security matters to states like like Iran. They don't like to show their weakness. And externally, they needed to show that they're capable of projecting forces against enemies that attack them in, internally. The Pakistanis, more than anyone, understand how these double games are played. Um, given their support for groups like Lashkari Taiba and, and, and the constellation of terror groups in India, as well as their support for the Afghan Taliban, which supports the Pakistani Taliban, which launches attacks inside. The Pakistanis get this. This is, I wouldn't be shocked. You know, I can't prove this. This is just Bill speculation if they coordinated this attack and response um, beforehand, um, given how I don't see this escalating. It's certainly possible. It's not beyond or certainly not beyond the realm of possibility. But the both the Pakistanis and the Iranians understand how this game is played, how they have internal pressures to deal with. And again, they both kick the dog that everyone hates on the, in the neighborhood. Um, so basically no harm, no foul, other than a little bit of territorial violation that both can um, get away with. Totally agree. And that 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 big nugget in there about uh, why they need to be seen as responding again has a lot to do with not even just the local population, but the regime elites in either country. They need to be seen uh, as responding. And again, the more capable Iranian weapons are becoming. You know, this is not just a uh, asymmetric military powerhouse. It certainly is not a conventional military powerhouse, but it's moving out of that asymmetric box. So expect more of these attacks, not less. You know, military means, limited military means. Uh, are increasingly becoming the language of conflict adjudication for Iran, whether it's activating a front or launching a missile or transferring a drone. This is the language of conflict adjudication. Yeah, and and we unfortunately just don't we. I mean, I talk about I'm talking about U.S. policymakers, European policymakers, government officials do not understand this language whatsoever. It's it's so obvious. You know, again, I go back to the statements, but the Houthis are the easiest of this problem set to deal with, in my opinion, right? They're a militia force that's somewhat isolated on the peninsula. There's no real political downside to hitting them. They're attacking international shipping, which is going to drive up prices, and people understand that, and, and disrupt supply chains. But they're doing something that is akin to piracy, and nobody likes pirates. Nobody likes hijackers. That's what the Houthis are doing. It's the easiest case to make, and it's the easiest problem set to deal with militarily. And our messaging is we don't want to deal with this problem set. Now, unfortunately, this should not just be a U.S. issue, but unfortunately, the U.S. seems to be the only country that has the capability to – and by the way, I'm starting to question – those capabilities over time. Do we have enough aircraft carriers to put out there and, and support ships? Do we, I heard something like 2% of the U.S. supply of Tomahawk missiles were used in that first round of strikes last week against the Houthis. Well, people say, well, we still have 98%, but you have to understand that these these missiles are apportioned in multiple theaters. We need them in in to defend uh, against, say, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. We need them in, you know, in multiple theaters, right? Um, is the U.S. making these missiles quick enough? The U.S. makes a couple of dozen of these a year. Can we restock what we just shot? I don't want to get into all that in you know at this point in time, but 
you know, you had mentioned early on, and that uh, that actually piqued my interest about capabilities. The Iranian capabilities seem to be growing, and our capabilities are either stagnant or possibly decreasing, and our will is certainly isn't there. And that is not a formula to defeat a group like the Houthis and their masters, the Iranians. And it, it's a real shame. The, the, this is what is so bothersome. Look, I'm the and, and I know I've said this multiple times. After our failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, and and in some ways in in say Somalia and other countries, I'm the last person to be advocating for the U.S. to get into a shooting war because I we're incompetent at, at, at this. But this is one that we should should still have a competency for. And what I'm seeing now is that we don't even have competency for this, and this is sending all of the wrong messages to our adversaries and enemies. Hey, amen. <laughs> well, Benham, do you have anything else to add before we wrap no, this up? No, I couldn't up? have said that better than myself. I mean, I, I have my own Actually, reservations ben- and misgivings, but there, there's a joke or a line in Persian when you say, um, when there's a lot of people doing something, you say, whoever got in a fight with their mom and left, because there's there's a no shortage of folks online and in this town who, whoever got in a fight with their mom and left who are now talking about going for the head of the snake. And I absolutely understand that logic. I absolutely understand uh, the need to actually signal resolve against the patron and not the proxy. And, you know, my question is to them, do they understand the shortcomings that you have mentioned? And how confident are they in the adversary being able to change a impression of resolve that they have about us so quickly and that's why the yemen stuff takes time and that's why the iraq stuff takes time and that's why what you say when you use force also matters as much if not more and until i see you know certain constituencies learning this lesson i'm kind of just like yourself sir i'm kind of hesitant to put a loaded gun in a shaky hand yeah that's absolutely right and ben um, i'm absolutely certain that you could have said that better than me um but no anyway, <laughs> thanks again for a fascinating episode um i really look forward to our conversation well you're going to be off the next two weeks correct you're, yes forgive me next week i'm on travel but yes the week after february 2nd we'll be back to freaky fridays excellent excellent i look forward to it safe travels we'll have a special guest coming on um to we'll continue talking about these issues maybe getting a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of u.s capabilities in the region looking forward to that but benham again safe travels looking forward to getting you back on upon your return uh, i'm sure there's going to be a lot to talk about as always um but you know thanks again for joining me today thank you appreciate it thank you everyone for joining us for today's episode of generation jihad just a reminder you can find us on youtube apple spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts make sure you subscribe and leave us a review thanks again we'll see you all again soon